The Internet History Podcast is brought to you by MetaLab. Their slogan is MetaLab, we make interfaces. For a decade, MetaLab has helped some of the world's top companies and entrepreneurs build products that millions of people use every day. You probably didn't realize it at the time, but the odds are you've used an app that they've helped design or build. Apps like Slack, Coinbase, Facebook Messenger, Oculus, Lonely Planet, and many more. MetaLab wants to bring their unique design philosophy to your project. Let them take your brainstorm and turn it into the next billion-dollar app, from idea sketched on the back of a napkin to a final shipped product. Check them out at metalab.co. That's metalab.co. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brian McCullough. So as I think we say near the top of this episode, John McRae and I have been circling each other for a while. We both know some of the same people, some of the people who have already been on this podcast. And John pops up Zelig-like in a lot of the stories we've already covered. Apple, Netscape, doing battle with Microsoft in the 90s. So this was a long time coming, and many people had told me ahead of time that John is an exceptional storyteller. Unfortunately, I had a limited window of time to talk to him, so I was prepared, even going in, to ask him to come back if things really got rolling, as opposed to trying to truncate his stories or skip around for the sake of brevity. Well, we did really get rolling, as you'll hear. John's stories were fantastic, and he was kind enough to agree to come back. So this is just part one. This part is mostly about Silicon Graphics, which is a company I had been thinking about doing an episode on for a while now to really rejuvenate that company's reputation historically for reasons which will become obvious in this conversation. So please enjoy this first part with John McRae. John McRae, thanks for finally coming on the Internet History Podcast. Although I should say... It's my fault that it's been so long. We've been circling for many years, but thanks for finally coming on. Uh, I am thrilled to be here. Thank you. Um, and actually, I don't know what what recent interviews I've been doing. My standard opening question is, you know, what you went to school for, what your background was. I feel like I haven't asked it in a while. But So I know that um, you went to MIT, but uh, did you originally go for physics or something like that? Yeah, I'm a, a rare duck in the sense that... Um, Went to MIT for physics, had a major uh, change of direction, uh, and ended up in the bucket that at MIT is, if it's not science or engineering, all other subjects are humanities. Uh, so I was in humanities with a major in creative writing. Wow. Did you want to be a writer? Yeah. So when I, I basically had two great passions. One of them was science. One of them was creative things, writing central to that. And I didn't really, it's, I struggled in Silicon Valley to make sense of it. And eventually, uh, late in his life, uh, uh, Steve Jobs was talking about how important it is to be at the intersection of technology and humanities. And I went, mm -hmm. oh, that's what I've been doing. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, but then you do get an MBA at Stanford. So what, what's in between the wanting to be a writer and then getting an MBA? Uh, excellent question. So basically, strangely enough, I spent the 1980s um, trying my best to avoid for-profit enterprise as a kind of counterculture uh, artist young man. Uh, and then I, some through a circuitous route, found myself in Portland, Oregon, uh, in 1989. And, uh, that's when the Berlin wall came down. And for me, that ended up being a, an electric moment, uh, a born again, capitalist epiphany <laughs> as I saw the, the two competing systems of the world that had struggled for decades. There was now one clear winner. And so within days I was trying to figure out what is a business school how do you get into them? Which ones are the best? And somehow, thankfully, Harvard said no and Stanford said yes. Well, this is maybe jumping ahead a little bit because I've, I've been reading your blog and, and you apparently desperately wanted to get a job eventually at a, at a tech company. But um, so, so wait, you're, you're, you're going to Stanford in the late 80s, 89, 90, right? Uh, so by the time I actually completed the process and got in, I started uh, 91. Mm. So I graduated Stanford Business School in 93, mm -hmm. was right at the kind of tail end of what was both a recession right. and kind of boring period in the life of Silicon Valley. Well, I don't know if you've heard, but like I've said before on the show, uh, Mark Andreessen has a quote where he says when he got to Silicon Valley, it was kind of dead. <laughs> and you're right. There's that. There was that recession. Yep. No, uh, it's. It, it, there was there was generally the feeling that nothing big was going on in any sort of uh, exciting way. Well, so but this is this is what I'm trying to drive at. So why the, did you get the technology bug? Like if again, like if it was two or three years later, if it's ninety five, ninety six, oh okay, the the dot com stuff is happening. So I could see why a kid would be, would be struck by technology. But if it's dead, why why do you want to go into it? Ah, uh, yeah. So a couple of things. But so. I should say I'm exaggerating a bit around the sleepiness. There right. were things if you looked. So, for example, the very first thing I did when I got down to Silicon Valley uh, was to hack my new network to get to get a demo of a hot new technology that I had read about in The Wall Street Journal. It was a company called uh, VPL, and they had. Uh, they were the very first virtual reality company. They, mm -hmm. they coined the term. So there were things that were potentially on the horizon that were exciting. Was, you know, that, was that Jaren's company? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so uh, when I had my born-again capitalist epiphany, I also reconnected with my science engineering, science fiction uh, teenage self. And when I found myself in Silicon Valley, it was pretty obvious to me that I wanted to do something related to new technology. The truth is, I first thought that given that I didn't have an operational background, that I'd probably be better off going into venture capital, which seemed like something that would might be cerebral and something that I could do. And uh, so many of those assumptions were not quite right. Um, but I talked to almost every venture capitalist in 1991, 1992. And by the time the like 30th one of them said to me the same thing, which is, you'd be a lot more interesting to us if you had actually built something from zero to $100 million, mm -hmm. go get a job. 
that I realized that's, you know, that was at least where I would start in Silicon Valley. Right. Actually, actually earning, well, learning and earning some chops. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so then I should say, you know, there was one bright, shiny object in Silicon Valley at that time. Uh, and it, it was the company Silicon Graphics. Mm. Right, yeah. right. And there was a little bit, and again, I've talked about this before, there there was that little bubble for handheld stuff with General Magic and, and Go Corp and all that stuff, too, at the same time. Right, and I actually did a, uh, I, one of my most interesting courses at Stanford Business School was co-taught by Andy Grove of Intel fame. And uh, uh, you had to go out and meet with uh, a company and do a, a piece about a strategic decision that they were wrestling with. And so I met with Mike Homer at Go, mm. Homer who would go on to Netscape, right. and and they were a, they were dying uh, as an early mover in this mobile computing space. And while they were dying, they were in the midst of doing a migration from Motorola to Intel chips. And and my strategic insight and recommendation was, don't do that. Just try and stay alive without doing two chips at once and i got a very low grade from andy grove <laughs> <laughs> well you know actually though this is the perfect place um uh you said there's the uh there's one shining beacon on the hill or <laughs> over the valley i guess uh, yeah. uh, uh to mix a metaphor is silicon graphics so i want like i said let's pause your story yep. and tell us how what silicon graphics meant and even all the way through to its its eventual fate. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Silicon Graphics is a perfect Silicon Valley startup story uh, because so much of the magic of Silicon Valley, in, in my view, is um, this combination of <clears throat> Stanford University, um, venture capital on Sand Hill Road, great weather, and a bunch of entrepreneurs. And... Uh, Jim Clark, uh, who started Silicon Graphics and would go on to be uh, the founder of Netscape and uh, Healthion. And at one point, I think he was the first person to be the founder of three different right. billion dollar companies. Right. He was a professor at, Silicon, uh, at uh, Stanford. Uh, and he and his graduate students there uh, – pushed the boundaries of what you could do with graphics, and they invented uh, a new kind of chip, uh, which they called the geometry engine. Mm -hmm. And it was a chip that was extremely well suited for the floating point intensive mathematical calculations that you need to do for real-time interactive three-dimensional graphics at a point in time where computers didn't do that. And so Jim got the entrepreneurial bug, uh, but he did not want out, want, he didn't set out to create a computer company. He set out to create something that would look a lot more like what NVIDIA is today. He thought that you could turn the geometry engine into a product that you could license to all of the, uh, the makers of powerful Unix workstations. And uh, I don't know if he was not yet a great salesman or if those companies were too stuck in the rut of uh, late 80s Silicon Valley torpor, but he failed and basically decided, well, I've got to make a company. 
And so Silicon Graphics became the first maker of computers that could do interactive 3D graphics. But so what you're what you're saying though is it ends up being a hardware company essentially. Well, it was always going to be hardware, but it they, right. the, I think the idea was chips or right. or graphics boards. Um, and so it ends up becoming uh, by the time I would get there years later, it was uh, the hottest company in Silicon Valley. It was selling. Um, workstations that started at the tens of thousands of dollars and went up into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, and, and they eventually found, you know, like a dozen different vertical markets where 3d interactive real time 3d could be transformative. Right. As I've, as I've said before, if people haven't heard these shows, um, the, the dinosaurs in uh, Jurassic park, Terminator two is part of it. So there's the Hollywood angle, but then yep. also these these workstations are hugely popular, and as we'll talk about at some point, um, you know they're even used at places like Netscape eventually. Yes, uh, we'll have a, we'll have an interesting uh, uh, sidebar on that. But yeah, so uh, they the and Silicon Graphics in the late '80s, early '90s was um, an ever more sprawling campus um, that had. Um, beautiful cafeterias with free dinners. Um, a lot of what we think about of the kind of the culture of the Valley was getting uh, pushed forward by Silicon Graphics at the time. You know what? I'm, I'm going to interrupt you again because I'm remembering two other things. Um, involved in the full service network partnership with Time Warner, which um, has been discussed extensively. This will be of interest to nerds. Um, worked on the Nintendo 64 I've got a backstory on that, if you'd like. Sure, go ahead. Uh, so Jim Clark was um, talking about video games uh, months and months before there was any strong intersection between Silicon Graphics and video games. Um, and the company's uh, COO, Tom Jermaluk, who will feature in a lot of my story coming up, apparently he was a pretty young guy. He just bought a motorcycle and uh, and shortly thereafter, Jim Clark bought a motorcycle <laughs> and he didn't know how to ride it. And so like on his first day out, he ended up in a, a wreck that could have killed him and that put him in the hospital for an extended stay. And uh, uh, if the story is correct, uh, Wei Yen, who was, I think, the CTO, um, oh, no, no, it was... Uh, it doesn't actually. It doesn't matter who did it. Uh, uh, someone asked Jim, "What's your favorite video game?" And he said, "I don't know. I haven't played any." And so they brought him uh, in the hospital while he's in traction. They got him a like I think it was probably a Sega uh, 16-bit uh, uh, 2D graphics uh, console and a bunch of games. And so he played them, and and he basically in the hospital decided we've got to do this. And I guess he sent Wei Yen to Japan to negotiate a deal with Nintendo in which the Nintendo 64 would become this first ever uh, real-time inter in interactive graphics, 3D graphics console, which was essentially fully designed in Mountain View by the Silicon Graphics team at a time when personal computers were 32-bit. This little consumer electronics device was 
a full-on 64-bit uh, device with a you know the same kind of 100 megabit system bus as the Indie Workstation. Um, okay, so uh, to, we want to get back to you, but uh, so let's bring the bring the Silicon Valley or Silicon Graphics story uh, to a landing. They're basically called like the new Apple in the yes. early 90s. Yeah, yeah. The cover story of Business Week. They're the G Wiz company, and the opening paragraph is something about like they're they're like the new Apple of Silicon Valley. Oh wait a minute, no, Apple sucks. They're like the new Microsoft of Silicon Valley. This is so ironic. Written by Rob Huff. Hmm. Um, but then, and this is, I'm sure there's a million Harvard Business School case studies on this. It's it's the classic, the 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 cheap, the the bottom of the market overtakes the high yeah, end so, workstations. So fast forward to right before I joined the company. I joined the company in January of '94, and Jim Clark, founder and chairman, has recently departed. And he's departed with a kind of a bad blood, bad feeling between him and the CEO, Ed McCracken. And one of the big strategic disputes is that Jim Clark had been pushing for a direction, uh, a new direction for the company to basically enter into the business of making graphics boards for other hardware companies. Again, the, the NVIDIA analogy kind of too, yeah. Exactly. And it's also it's the classic innovator's dilemma, which is um, if you're potentially about to be disrupted and eaten from below, can you take the margin hit and actually destroy your own business in order to survive and become a new business? And uh, that's a hard thing to do. The company wasn't willing and able to do it. Jim left in a huff. And had to figure out something new to do. Um, uh, somewhat ironically, tying it back, one of the key takeaways from Andy Grove in the high-tech strategy course previously mentioned, he painted a vision of two different ways to make computer companies, horizontal or vertical. And his strong thesis that he pounded into us was, horizontal will always beat vertical. And therefore, Microsoft horizontal at the OS layer, and Intel, horizontal at the chip layer, will eventually crush Apple, Sun, Silicon Graphics, et cetera, all these vertically integrated companies that control their operating system, their chips, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, I, yeah, go ahead. ultimately what happened to Silicon Graphics is they got eaten from below. Right. Um, I'm actually, I, I didn't know this. I just pulled up the Wikipedia page. I didn't realize they, they were still around through 2009. No, that's, that's a little bit like Polaroid still being around. <laughs> uh, so, so, uh, um, I left in 1998. Um, they stayed around in that form for a few more years, but I think they went bankrupt and then I, a supercomputing company out of Oregon, I think, might have bought the brand asset. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so let's bring you back into the story. Um, our all right. Uh, newly minted MBA, uh, as I read, you really, really want to get into tech and apparently have, have a hard time? Yeah, so just as uh, all of the venture capitalists looked at me as this kid with no 
relevant background. It was also the case that I didn't really have an obviously relevant background in tech. Um, and so I needed a lucky break. And uh, somehow the network provided and uh, uh, Scott Bonham, who was the product manager of the Indie Workstation, um, ended up bringing me on board along with one other person in uh, what in Silicon Valley is called a try before you buy, which is a contractor position where, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if it works out, they might hire you or not. And that was January of 1994. And it's a, it's a marketing position. Yeah. It was kind of, you know, loosely defined as marketing. It was in, uh, what, uh, in inside Silicon graphics it was a very siloed company. Um, um, each there were many different divisions at operating at different price points, and this was the low end division that had just recently launched what was supposed to be a transformational new product, the Indie Workstation. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a lot of stuff that needed to get done. Um, and uh, the magic of Indie was it was supposed to dramatically expand volume by instead of being a $20,000, $15,000 box. It was supposed to be a $5,000 box and mm. to open up a whole lot of new business. So kind of doing, going going down market sort of like Jim Clark wanted, but just not quite far enough. Right, exactly. That was, yeah, the plan was to go down market that way rather than the more radical way of boards for other companies. Well, actually, you know what it occurs to me? Describe what a workstation meant in the early 90s like who would buy it what's the use case for it? like why are people buying twenty thousand dollar workstations yeah so uh, you know the the um the form factor of a workstation wasn't dissimilar from a personal computer um many of them were like a tower um although silicon graphics as uh, a wonderfully crazy uh company um, every box they came out with was a different shape and a different color. Yeah, they were way into design, weirdly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, a kind of a little bit like um, Apple in terms of uh, really focusing a lot of energy on design. So, like Indy, the Indy was a bright blue pizza box configuration. Right, into design in the not the minimalist white Apple way, but in the very early '90s sort of colorful Wired magazine sort of way. Yes. Yeah. And and uh, somewhat ironically or boldly, the part of the way they the indie got down to a lower price point is that they didn't even include the geometry engine. Hmm. So that was a very controversial move. Apparently, um, it was still able to do 3D because the uh, the CPU was reasonably good for that time. Um, but to your, to your question a moment ago, the workstations were used for applications where a personal computer lacked the horsepower. And, um, in the case of the Silicon graphics world, that was things like, uh, computer aided design, um, certain kinds of electronic printing requirements, a lot of different science things, architecture so it's a world where like we assume any of that stuff now 
a, a PC can handle, even a laptop can handle. Like if you're in an architecture office, you don't need some sort of 30,000. Well, I, 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 not all cases, I'm sure. But um, it's a world where on the high end, you need high end stuff to do high end work. Right. And, and, and interestingly, you know, the, at the time, if we you know, go back to 1994, PCs were pretty anemic in their capabilities. Um, if you wanted to do something like um, multimedia development, which was a thing back then that produced an end product called a CD-ROM, <laughs> um, that market was largely Apple. So Apple was kind of a step above personal computers. So if you're doing creative stuff, you like the step up in horsepower towards some graphical stuff that the, the Mac could give you. But the Mac was not really a 3D machine. If you wanted to do 3D, you really wanted to step one or two rungs up on the compute ladder. And that's where Silicon Graphics played. It's where some companies like uh, Hewlett Packard, Sun Microsystems, and DEC played. Well, and also, I even remember this. Like in the early 90s, there's some not insignificant percentage of the PC install base that you there's it's it's you not even color monitors like it, we're talking about graphics like you can't do graphics if you're just still in a command line on DOS and things like that. That's right. And the and the um, the box introduced prior to indie, so probably uh, a couple years prior, uh, was called the Indigo, and the Indigo. So let's say that's probably around ninety two um, was the first computer from any manufacturer that had uh, audio, digital audio was mm -hmm. native to it. You didn't have to buy a card and stick it in. This thing was, you know, good to go. So we were as a, you know, the industry was going through a set of progressions that are kind of hard to believe now if you didn't actually live through it. All right, bringing you back in again. Uh, all right, so January of 94, you're, you're brought in, you're green. Uh, Marketing for the Indie Workstation. Yes, and there's a there's a a, a, a marketing task that is uh, some combination of urgent, uh, um, a lot of work, and no one wants it. And it's uh, Silicon Graphics will show up for the first time as a vendor on the floor at MacWorld Expo. Mm -hmm. And uh, somehow or another, I was the new guy, and they gave it to me. Uh, what's MacWorld Expo like in 1994? Um, well, it turns out I had never been to a MacWorld Expo, so I didn't have anything to compare it to. Mm, and, it was, right. and, it's, and it's particularly funky thinking about this now. Like, this is essentially, I don't know if it was owned by Apple, but this is, you know, hardcore lovers of Apple are there to learn about apple -y stuff. And here's this silicon graphics company with competing hardware showing up. And it, and, and it was so different. I, I, I remember it really felt like we were uh, aliens that had just landed into the Moscone Center and people were coming up and staring at the hardware like, what is that? <laughs> That's not a Mac. What is that? And... Uh, you know, we always, uh, you know, Silicon Graphics was a visual computing company. So everything we did uh, had high impact, sexy visuals, you know, and uh, 
and again, you know, it was driving stuff in special effects in movies and increasingly in video games. So our demo reels were all like eye popping and jaw dropping. Well, and you're you're coming in there doing what what Apple at the time you know hung its hat on. We're 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 the multimedia company. We're we're for the creatives coming, and you guys are the guys that are actually killing that stuff at the time. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a weird time. Apple was you know clearly off their game, and there was a sense that they could be knocked off their perch, that they might die. I mean, it turns out uh, during my four years at Silicon Graphics between 94 and 98, there was a period of time where uh, there were discussions, I believe, around SGI buying Apple, and at the same time, the potentially of Sun buying Apple. Right. And, and at one point, I was told, it might happen this week, we should be prepared with our PR strategy to handle that, John, come up with something. That's a, that's a, completely insane alternate universe to think about i guess uh, <laughs> oh I, sh I should also give you one more uh, if to do the justice to yeah, the yeah. general silicon graphics story put it in a perspective that anyone who knows silicon valley can go experience this this very day that you're listening to it um if you've ever gone to google for a meeting right right <laughs> you've, you've been to silicon graphics right so during my time there, uh, a new campus was built. And uh, when you go to, when you go to um, don't worry about it. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. So when you, when you go to uh, a meeting at Google on the main campus, there's these four buildings. I think it's 41, 42, 43 and 44. That's the new campus of Silicon Graphics with the same building numbers and with the same paint job on the outside, the beautiful shapes and colorful colors that look a little bit googly, that's Silicon Graphics. And the fact that they didn't change the building numbers, I think is not laziness, but a kind of inside homage to the kind of archeology span of the valley. And, and it's a, also a sense of like, this company that most people now have never heard of got all the way up to building number 45. That is oh. interesting. I never thought of that every time I've been there that you're right, that that is still the, the that looks like a, a, a design by Silicon Graphics building, those buildings. But it also looks like it's Google. Like it just yeah, works. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's funny down that I have to share is, um, you know, the right by there is a place called the sports page. Yes, which is yeah. Kind of a, a divey sports bar that's been there forever. Um, when Silicon Graphics was really young, um, and they were putting, they were going from buildings one, two, and three to having building four. They named, they gave the fourth building the number building five, because for more than a year people had been referring to the sports page mm -hmm. as building number four as in, Oh, I've got a meeting at building four <laughs> in a uh, half an hour. So there. Well, so now you know the, the, the true origin story of the, of the Google Plex, although there were other Google Plexes before that one too, but yeah. Um, the, um, okay. So 
Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna have you guide me into the next story. Should we go to the uh, Worldwide Web Conference next, or am I skipping over some fun stuff? Yeah, no, I think we're, let's let's just start with the um, uh, so uh, the indie is mm-hmm. supposed to be this much higher volume product, but it's struggling. It's it's not making its numbers, and I throw out the idea you know, maybe we need to find a new market space, a new application. And uh, someone much more senior to me scoffingly said to me, oh, you're a proponent of the killer app theory. I'm like, uh, I don't know. I just thought, you know, maybe it would be good <laughs> if there were, you find some new things to do. And I should give some context here too. I mentioned uh, multimedia that was the hot new market at the time. Right, CD-ROMs. And, and, and we couldn't sell an indie into that market to save our souls because it was uh, something where the application was macro media director. And director didn't run on indie. And nothing we could say to macro media would convince them to do a port. And so I'm sitting there looking at this seemingly hot new market, really super jealous of Apple that they've got it working and we don't. And so it's in that environment, in that context, when in January, like shortly after I joined, I ended up going to the uh, Wired Magazine first anniversary party. Right. And I run into Jonathan Stoyer who in, on learning that I'm the indie product manager says, oh, that's fantastic. We've got a new project here that we really want to use indies as the web server for the launch of what would become Hotwired. And uh, I said, oh, that's really awesome. What's a web server? And so <laughs> that, was, that was my introduction, and it would lead me down the rabbit hole and over the course of the next six months, everywhere I turned, I would find, oh, my God, I slash we are in the right place at the right time. There's a hot new market taking off. And almost everyone who's doing anything interesting in it is either on an indie or wants to be on an indie. Right. Um, I don't know. We we might come back to this, but uh, (laughs) Wired was uh, begging and and scraping around for any sort of hardware at at that point. But um, so is is the next is the next story then then the web thing, because now you you determine that maybe this is a hot, a hot market to go into. Right. By the by the summer of 94, Uh I'm like, oh, my God, this this looks like the thing. This is this is huge happenstance. Um, there ended up being another meeting between Andrew Anker at Hotwired mm-hmm. and uh, Sanford Russell, who was also on the indie product team. And that quickly turns into a discussion about hardware and uh, and, a, and a quick deal is made. Uh, they get five indies in exchange for some kind of promotional treatment for us. And. Sanford knew that I was pushing hard down the web pathway. He came to me with it, said, what do you want to do? And so uh, 
at the essentially when they rolled live and had the very first um, banner ads, there was an even more valuable piece of real estate that was right. at the bottom of every screen. And uh, on it was a, the phrase that I coined or borrowed, which was powered by Silicon Graphics. Uh, you know, and, I'm going to uh, because I, I, I read your blog post on this. So, like, it's it's not that, uh, you know. The, the first banner ad, we, we, we did all those episodes on that and things like that. But in a way, the first thing you would have seen on Hotwired that was actually a marketing thing uh, was, was that. Yes, and it had the sexy little three-dimensional silver cube thing that was the icon of Silicon Graphics. And that would be the beginning of what would become both a, a really extended um, marketing campaign and also an example of a marketing campaign that went viral because um, ultimately we started seeing powered by Silicon graphics showing up all over the place on sites that we didn't have any relationship with. And, and even I'll never forget the day driving into work back then when voicemails were a thing, getting the voicemail saying, John, what's going on? Penthouse magazine has just gone on the web. And it says powered by Silicon Graphics. Because it's almost like the, it, uh, because it it's a thing that people were seeing, they felt like to keep up with the Jones. Well, we have to we have to look like we're also powered by Silicon Graphics, too. It's essentially saying, take us seriously. Right. We're with the cool guys. And, and that's still I mean, that's a convention to this day. Um, even on even on podcasts, there's a podcast I was listening to that was oh no, Leo Laporte's podcast. They're always hosting. Had you seen anything like that before? Like, were you were you copying any other like powered by stuff or? Yes, so I'll give you the origin story. It's pretty good. So uh, the big uh, conference in the world of computer graphics is the annual uh, meeting of SIGGRAPH, and back in. 94, um, SIGGRAPH would have been the sort of thing where the, the biggest booth at this whole thing would be the Silicon Graphics booth. We owned SIGGRAPH. And uh, the booth was so big that they called it Silicon City. And as you entered into this ominously large booth is not the right word for it. It was practically a city. It said Silicon City, powered by Silicon Graphics. Mm. And that stuck in my head. And so when the opportunity came to put that on a website, it's like, oh, I know what this should be, powered by Silicon Graphics. Yeah, and then I'm not saying, because probably this came maybe before that, but, you know, Intel inside. Like, that's what I'm saying is, like, this whole concept of, is like, whatever this gee whiz, whiz bang thing that's technological that you're seeing, well, this company is the company that has the juice to make that happen, you know? That's right. And it was a few years later that Intel put a really a lot of wood behind one arrow with that Intel inside, and that and it worked beautifully for them. Okay. Um where 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 are we going next? So uh, I think now I think we get to the uh, uh, the World Wide Web Com- second annual World Wide Web Conference October of 1994. Okay, because there there eventually there's something there's a question I want to ask you. I'm, I'm leading you in a direction for something that I want to talk about. But so um, tell me how you hear about it. Why you why you get to go? Are you the one that decides that uh, that Silicon Graphics should be there? Ah, oh, so it's it's funny like. 
I don't actually remember how I learned of it, but I would bet I bet money that I learned about it by surfing the web. Um, and and so I had a heads up on it. I'm like, I am booking it. I'm booking this. I'm not asking permission. I'm flying there. It's not like we're going to have a booth there. It's I, John McRae, will hell or high water. I will be at that event. And it's in Chicago, October 1994. And it's this magical moment where the web transitions from being a thing that is primarily or exclusively the domain of academia to its clear pivot into a commercial thing. Right, because the, the first conference was actually at CERN. Yeah, it's at CERN, and it's mostly academics talking about what you could do with this purely at a technical level and in the context of you know science. Is is this the one? I'm I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Is this the one where um, uh, Tim Berners Lee meets the mosaic? No, that was a different conference. That would have been earlier. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So, uh, so I get to this thing, and you know, go through the like get get your badge moment, and it's really kind of quaint. Couple of tables. It looks like they're expecting a CERN crowd, small. And instead, the number of people who show up on day one is way larger than the capacity of the event. A lot of people show up thinking they can get in, but if they haven't already bought, uh, registered, they're not getting in. And it's just, it's crazy. It's, it's beautiful. Um, the very first uh, evening, there's uh, a dinner. And at the happy hour before the dinner, I ended up bumping into... Um, Lou Montuli and uh, great guy. And we start hit it off immediately because I'm at Silicon Graphics and he's at Mosaic. Um, and he also says, oh, my God, you're the product manager for the indie workstation. We use indies for everything. Mm -hmm. And by the way, uh, and uh, I should say, I think at this point, they've just within weeks um, put up the first free downloadable version of the Mosaic browser. And they're using indie workstations not only for all their code development, but they're using them as the web server. And can I, can I just clarify, you, you, are, you are sure that this would be the Mosaic period and not the Netscape period, right? Because you're saying this is late 94. Yes, and I, okay. and, and, I, and I have the evidence right in front uh -huh. of me. I have <laughs> Montuli's business card where it says Zen Master of Code, Mosaic Communications Corporation. Beautiful. Okay. Oh, well, no, no, but see, this is what I'm saying. Because that was the original name of Netscape before the University of Illinois sued them. Yes. Right, exactly. Yes. So that, that uh, name change thing will play out over the next few months from that moment in time okay well i, I interrupted uh uh so you you meet oh. lou yeah sorry go ahead yeah i meet lou he says you know what we're seeing um we're seeing some some bottlenecking we get we run into problems when we've got like more than 50 uh concurrent users um and because it's 1994 uh and at this point i've got a mobile phone for the first time I immediately call back to uh, Mountain View and get connected to 
like head of software for Indie. And I share this story and I'm excited, like, oh my God, hot new market, uh, major new customer. And they're reporting a specific um, product issue. We should be all over that. And the reaction was so kind of droll, like um, it's a workstation. Yes, it's meant to be able to handle multiple users, but 50? Um, so, uh, the good news is that the team then did actually jump on the problem and within a few weeks had a much better, uh, more scalable TCP IP stack for handling, uh, that kind of large number of concurrent users. Anyway, yeah, that's, sorry. that's the beginning of this thing, the beginning of a night where, um, by the time dinner's finished, uh, we get boarded onto buses and taken to, uh, I guess the part of town where there's a lot of blues clubs. I forget some of the details are foggy, but by going with Lou, I get connected with Mark Andreessen and the entire, uh, what would become Netscape team. And I basically hang out drinking with them, swapping ideas, asking lots of questions and learning everything that they know and how could we serve them better. And so it's kind of like that. And in the next day, I'm looking around, there are actually companies there with booths that have product and I'm on the hunt for the next Macromedia. Someone who's got uh, an HTML authoring system that we can get running on indie so that we're not locked out of this market. Well, that's what I that's what I was leading you towards. So is this sort of like your career making sort of moment like this is the thing that I can hitch my horse to and uh So that, yeah. I I basically uh just as I had the born again capitalist epiphany when the Berlin Wall came down, this is the moment where I go, "Oh, my God, this is the biggest thing that will happen. And it's pretty obvious that this could be an enormous play for Silicon Graphics, both because the company had recently gone into the server business and because a whole new multimedia authoring software market is about to explode. Mm -hmm. And we could play on both sides of that workstations for authoring, servers for serving, and guess what? The indie can do both. And so my mission from that moment forward is how do we get into this market as quickly enough with a solution for authoring and a solution for serving? When you go back home and you, uh, <laughs> you, start, yes. to t you start to tell uh, Silicon Graphics about this epiphany, what's how are you received? Well, I should probably preface the answer by saying, first, I was um, 32 years old, mm -hmm. um, but I looked 25, and I had a, an MBA, and MBAs aren't really all that valued in tech companies. 
uh, and I had so little experience, uh, and I didn't have a background in the engineering stuff of graphics. So I was probably the least persuasive person to go around in an excited manner, trying to get people with a lot more experience to try and change their priorities. You know what just occurred to me? Um, sorry to interrupt, but no, because you know you come back, you've been meeting with the with the Netscape team. Was there any sort of maybe institutional political animosity towards the web because of Netscape, because of Clark, that sort of thing? It's an excellent question. As it turns out, uh, there's a lot of complexity there. And although I shared with you the backstory around Clark's departure, I didn't know any of that backstory at the time. Mm. And so it turns out, um, betting my career on making a successful partnership with Netscape, um, people who knew more might not have chosen to do that. Because there was, in fact, some real tension uh, unresolved between uh, between the two companies, between some of the players involved in what would uh, transpire, because the, this company that would be, would become Netscape was also um, growing fast, hiring, and not surprisingly, Jim Clark was saying, "Let's get this guy from SGI, this guy from SGI." They even were trying at that time uh, to cherry pick uh, Tom Germalik, the COO. Um, but I didn't know any of that at the time. Right. It's funny because uh, in all his, even that most recent Valley of Genius book, uh, the oral history, uh, but in his, in, in Jim Clark's autobiography or whatever, like he always says, well, I knew I couldn't hire anyone from, Sil but then if you look at it, there's all these Silicon Graphics people that come over. Yes, absolutely. But not me. I was, uh, I was, I was, I was busy. Okay. Anyway, so, yeah. So then you come so, back and you say, uh, here's I, my epiphany. Here's what I want to do. Yeah. It's really crystal clear. There's a huge opportunity here. Hey, server division. We have launched into the server market. And guess what? There's a whole new server market that's going to be enormous. It's called web serving. And some people, on the product slash marketing team agreed, um, but it would go up to the GM level and it'd be like, mm, you know what? Not really. Uh, we're really focused exclusively on the terabyte size database server market and the web thing doesn't, doesn't really look very big right now. Um, we had two software divisions that were making stuff. One was making mostly um, stuff for our desktop, and they made they made the GUI uh, and some of the tools. And there was another one that was uh, recently launched called Silicon Studio that was set up to create authoring software for interactive multimedia. Uh, but what they was, were, you know what? I, because I've not really covered that a lot. We're, we're getting into the HTML authoring and edit, editing editing stuff that I've never talked about. But I, it grew out of essentially the same sort of tools that were for things like CD-ROM creation and multimedia creation, right? Uh, I wouldn't say that. I'd okay. say at, at the time that, um, oh, I should say uh, just circling back for a moment in Chicago at the second annual World Wide Web conference, I found a vendor 
that had an HTML authoring software product. Hmm. Product was Hot Metal Pro right. from a Canadian company called Softquad. And so we exchanged business cards, the CEO and I, and started down a pathway of figuring out a deal to get them to port Hot Metal Pro to our flavor of Unix, which was IRIX, uh, which would have gotten me a check the box. We've got authoring software on our workstation. Uh, but what I really wanted to do was have an, a Silicon Graphics quality native authoring tool for HTML that could be used by anyone with a creative mind, not necessarily someone who knew how to write code. And a lot of that comes from my background in the arts, where what I saw on the web, among other things, was a new medium. Oh my Lord, a new medium that's going to be a large market. We should make tools for artists, tools for creatives. And so that was my pitch. And, uh, and it, it failed in both of the software divisions. Uh, one guy got kind of excited, but he was like, well, I like the idea, but how about instead it's an SGML tool? And that's like structured graphics markup. Right, right. Uh, of which HTML was kind of, I think, of a, a sort of a subset. And I said, you know what? That's a really interesting idea, but I doubt we're going to be able to persuade the web to change over to SGML. Mm. And so um, we hit a, a kind of rock bottom uh, in November where I basically have gone from the highest of highs. November of 95. 94. 94, still, okay, okay. Uh, yeah, we're still in. So at this point, uh, I remember so much of this because it, it was like it was happening both in fast motion and slow motion at the same time, which is I knew I was in an historic moment. And so I can remember every detail. Um, I was scared shitless that someone else was going to get to market before us with a web system product, whether it was a web server or web authoring tools product. I thought for sure Apple or Sun would clearly see this market and would beat us to the punch. And that just drove me insane. But when I couldn't get any division to agree to make the web one of its top priorities, I felt like I was dead in the water. And uh, at that point in time, partly because of the troubles Indy had in trying to get to volume, there was a new director of marketing, a guy named Jim White. And I think it was probably like on a Friday evening in his office, I shared my incredible frustration. And he said, I said, basically, the company, we, we, are going to blow this. We're going to let this opportunity slip through our fingers. And he said, "Why don't why don't you just make it happen?" <laughs> I went, uh, uh, "I'm not even what I didn't know exactly what he was suggesting." But then all of a sudden, I realized rather than having the different divisions that would logically do this. I could start a new business venture within the company that was to be 
the one that did the web. And, and so the next day I then was, um, met with Tom Furlong, who was the general manager of the low end division. And I said in a peppy, enthusiastic way that I was, uh, keen to be, uh, put in charge of an effort to, um, create these kind of bundled solutions that would be a combination of our hardware and software for web authoring and web serving. He said, that is fantastic. I've actually been trying, I've been advocating for solution bundles, uh, and getting a lot of resistance on it. So yes, please go ahead. And I said, well, uh, Thank you. That's great. Uh, um, I think he even no, he did a gesture. He's like uh, as if he were knighting me. I was going to say you had to get knighted. Yeah, yeah. I forget whether I asked for it or whether he came up with it. But basically, he 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 knighted me with a virtual sword, <laughs> or and, like a, a priest giving absolution or something. <laughs> yes, exactly. And you know, a smile on his face, twinkle in his eye. And I said, "That's you know what, Tom. That's that's great. Thank you, but." Uh, for this, I need to be knighted at a, a higher level because this has to span multiple divisions. And he said, great. Uh, can you be ready by Monday, uh, for the such and such meeting? It was some, something with, uh, either the, the, the whole exec staff of the company or, or what, I don't know. Um, and I said, Sure. And he called down to building six, which is where the headquarters was. And, and they said, no, 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 that, that's, uh, that's jammed up, but maybe on the other meeting on Wednesday. And so I got scheduled for this meeting of all of the company's vice presidents under the control of Tom Germalak for the following Wednesday, which thank God, because it gave me a few more days to actually put together a presentation. Um, this is the, what we're talking about is eventually known as the overall thing is web force, right? That's right. So you're saying that this is, you're like, you get knighted in like latish uh, 94 and that, that whole product line is launched like almost the early next year, right? January of 95. Mm -hmm. No, it's, this is the craziest period of my life. What, like, give me, give me a little color. <laughs> like what yeah. getting people to, to listen to you, getting a team together, working well, long hours, all that stuff. Well, so, so the, the, uh, the first thing of course, is I need to get through the hurdle of this, uh, meeting, uh, on a Wednesday after being knighted on a Friday and, uh, and, oh, and Tom says one very interesting thing to me at the end of this knighting ceremony in his office, he says, you're going to go in front of TJ and the team on Wednesday, Germalock. Tom Germalock, uh, but I don't want you to beg for money. I uh, okay. Uh, I'm naive enough that I said yes instead of pushing back. Um, and then I mentioned earlier that there were free dinners in the cafeteria. I was uh, in the cafeteria having dinner with Sanford Russell previously mentioned and, uh, one other guy and, uh, and they are very experienced P 
people within Silicon Graphics and they know that I'm going in front of this audience the next day and they know that I don't know what I'm getting myself into. So they asked me a few questions. Um, one of which is, so how much money are you asking for? And I said, uh, I'm actually not, um, I wasn't planning to ask for money because, uh, Tom Furlong said that I shouldn't really go begging. And Sanford Russell said something I'll never forget. He said, so let me get this right. You're going to go up in front of the full leadership of the company. Tell them that there's this enormous, the biggest opportunity, market opportunity in front of us. And you're not going to ask for any resources. That seems like a waste of their time. Mm. I went, oh, my God, you're right. So literally that night cooked up a three million dollar launch plan uh, and added one slide to this deck that was uh, otherwise finished. And uh, the next morning, uh, right before the meeting, uh, I watched all of the VPs go in and we were not first on the agenda. So we had to wait uh, till later. As Tom Furlong was going in, I said, Tom, I got to, I got to, talk to you for a moment. Uh, I'm actually planning to ask for, uh, for $3 million. And he said, okay. <laughs> so what, wait, was, was Tom trying to screw you like, or screw with your head? Like what, why the, because that makes sense. Like you, you, sh you should have some plan for some sort of budget or something. You know, I, to this day, I've never really, um, gone there. Um, I don't exactly know what his thought was. But I would say that I'm very grateful that uh, um, folks uh, gave me a little bit of coaching. So you you get in front of TJ, yeah. You so give the pitch, yeah. So it turns out it's you know it's a it's a pretty big boardroom type setting. There's probably twenty seats around the table and another twenty people in the back. Uh, had I'm, you done anything like this before? No, and I and and I'm new enough at the company that um, I know the names of the various GMs and VPs, but I haven't met any of them, so they don't know me. I don't know them. I've never, you know, I'm just this fresh-faced young punk in the front of the room with an incredibly powerful presentation uh, about a market that's growing exponentially and in which. It's happening on our platform, and we've got a clear plan. And uh, the plan is uh, license do a OEM licensing deal with Netscape to bundle their server software onto any of our server configurations under this WebForce brand. And um, and if possible, to have our own. Uh, native WYSIWYG HTML editing authoring software. Which would and, be which would be web magic. Yes. And the part of the way we got there is I had been also coached by Sanford Russell to say he told me that if you're going in front of TJ, Tom Germalak, if you go in front of him, know that he is um tactile. Do something with with physical substance. And so I had a prop and that prop was a shrink rack wrapped box of soft quads, uh, hot metal pro. And I 
basically talked about how wouldn't it be great if we could be in this new multimedia authoring market with our own product? Or if not, we can have this box, I can get it ported. And, and TJ, who was halfway down the left side, interrupted and said, can I see that? And this box then went from one exec to another, and each one felt that he or she needed to look at it with, <laughs> with a kind of reverence <laughs> all the way around the table. Um, what will transpire is within 24 hours, Wei Ting, who headed up one of the two software divisions, the one that did the GUI and desktop tools, came to me and said, you know, we really should do our own. And so it was this magic of this prop going around the room and everyone going, man, wouldn't it be great if we had our own software? So instead of you asked for three, right? But I think you get two and a half. Yeah. But so it, the magic moment, um, uh, again, because it happened so late and there wasn't this coordination. So we get to the end and we hadn't really rehearsed. How do we do the ask? How do we close? <laughs> And TJ says, looking at this thing where I'm, I, I basically have shown, he, he looks, he goes, so let me get this straight. If I give you two to three million dollars, you'll take your outlook for the next two quarters up by 15 million. And by outlook up, he means that the low end division would agree to bring in $15 million more in revenue in Q1 and Q2 of calendar 1995, which is essentially what I was clearly suggesting, but hadn't coordinated with Jim White, who was the director of marketing, nor with Tom Furlong, the GM of the division. And so TJ is looking at me. The room is mostly dark, except for the light on me and a few of the execs. I'm looking to the back of the room where in the darkness, please help me out. And after what seemed like a really long pause, Jim White stepped forward. This is the guy who had encouraged me to take the leadership on this. He said, yes, we'll take our outlook up by 15. And and as he's saying that, TJ has to swerve to the left in his chair to acknowledge, hear it, see it. He then swerves back to my direction and he literally says, pointing at me, make it so, number one. <laughs> oh, a little Picardy there, yes. Exactly. There aren't really many moments in my career that have quite that level of drama, but that's that's the magic moment. <laughs> that's a great story. As soon as the room clears, I go to the back. Jim White comes up to me, kind of leans in close, almost whispers into my ear. Your number one job now is hiring. You've got to build a team. Uh, a team that will include uh, previous guest Rob Reed. Yes. Yes. And so, so, so basically, I've now gotten everything I could ask for. And I've committed us to between November and January to actually make this product line come about. And I was forcing January because I thought if we waited any later, for sure, Sun or Apple or someone else was going to beat us to the punch. 
I um I'm going to interrupt here because one of the things that I've talked about before in terms of conceptually like turning uh, commercializing the web there's a couple ideas where um you know everyone thinks it's a publishing medium so then when the banner ads come out it's like well you publish and then you, you sell ads against it there's then there's this is a, a little forgotten and maybe I, I haven't even uh given it enough credit but a lot of the early businesses built around the web were literally putting people on the web like this is maybe an under uh researched part for from me but like literally the companies that were created by developers to be like all right i'll make a website for you and things like that um, but like what WebForce is going to become is sort of the first, like, uh, really professional high level, like sort of, uh, turn it's a brand, you know, like, I think you guys get like, you're the, you generate like a hundred million dollars in revenue. Um, yes. and, and, and so like, this is, this is kind of the moment where if, if, if Netscape is, is commercializing the web and turning it into a business through the browser and things like that. But you guys are also doing this um, maybe in a way uh, before that in a, in a more meaningful way. Yeah. So I think uh, a few things there. One, for sure, whenever there's an, anything that looks at all like what happened in 95 with the web, the sellers of picks and shovels make right. the most money. Right. And WebForce was a picks and shovels play at exactly the right time. Uh, and when we, uh, so fast forward a bit and I, we can get to some of the things in the middle, but it turns out we actually made almost exactly $15 million in incremental revenue in those first two quarters. Mm -hmm. Um, and we would be at a hundred million dollar run rate within six months. Um, and you know, it, it would be hard for me to say that there was another company that got to a hundred million dollar run rate around web products right prior to us uh, yeah you know i'll have to go back and look at some of those netscape numbers you might be right about that Net netscape's the one that i that could could possibly right. be um sun would eventually uh and i'm eventually as in like within months uh would overtake us but there's this delicious moment in most of 1995 and maybe even into 1996, where we were the number one OEM partner, I believe, for Netscape. Uh, speaking of delicious, and and John, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you this now, and I'm gonna keep this part on the show. Um, this is too good, and I, I told you that I was gonna have a limited time tonight. Um, if you are generous enough and kind enough. I want to end here because I know that there's other stuff and I don't want to yada yada if I could get another hour out of you to get this other stuff that I know that's coming up. Will you come back and let's do a part two? I would be happy to. Uh, so then, guys, that's coming. Uh, temporarily, John McRae, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. And we're going to be scheduling part two as soon as you hear the music. If you like what you've heard on this episode, please support us by subscribing to the podcast so you can get great news stories and conversations every two weeks. And please buy the book that was based on this podcast, How the Internet Happened from Netscape to the iPhone by me, Brian McCullough. Order it now wherever books are sold. How the Internet Happened.